You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is someone who started out her career as an executive assistant, worked through 10 years with growing startups in fintech, biotech, AI, and more, and is now the Senior Vice President of Human Resources at Bullhorn, a global leader in software for the staffing industry. Please welcome Kelly Morse. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Well, we are excited to have you. Tell us a little bit about Bullhorn. What is your 30-second elevator pitch? Yeah. So as you mentioned, we are the global leader in software for the staffing industry. So we have a cloud-based platform and it powers the staffing industry who puts the world to work. Over 10,000 companies rely on our software for all of their staffing processes from start to finish. We are headquartered in Boston. We have offices around the world. We're still led by our founder, Art Pappas, and we employ about 1,600 people globally. And with all that, what's your favorite part of your job? So in my role as a head of HR, I get to interact with people all day long. And the best part is having that privilege to be both a coach and a sounding board to employees and leaders. It's really rewarding when I see someone sort of have that light bulb moment based on some advice I gave them or some different pieces of the puzzle that I helped them put together. Sometimes people just need another lens. Sometimes I have to give critical feedback or constructive feedback, but it's just so rewarding when people come back and they say, thank you, you really helped me. And those are the parts of my job that are just really enjoyable to be that trusted person for a lot of people in our organization. What's a strategy that you use when you do have to give that constructive feedback to go from the proverbial, we need to have a talk, to them saying thank you in the end? Because that's always something that is, I think, when any opportunity for conflict is something many people will run from. And you seem to have figured out how to make that not happen. So what's your strategy? Look, feedback should always be given with the best of intentions and with kindness, but not over-rotating on that kindness, right? You've heard about like the Oreo sandwich where you have some really tough feedback to give someone and you put a positive and then you, you put something negative and then you put another positive behind it. When you're giving constructive feedback, you need to be direct and honest, but also kind and leading with the best of intentions. So I often use strategies of this is the way that I perceived this, or this is the way that I perceived you came across. So lead with kindness and feedback can be a really hard pill for some people to swallow. And so always have it in mind when you're giving it. Everyone takes it a little bit different. And it's so important that everybody out there who's listening to hear the framing that Kelly's just used of the I'm perceiving or when you did X, the way it came across to me was Y. That's a slightly different frame from saying you sound this or you are that because it's that ascribes intention to them. And the first thing they're not going to be able to hear what their effect was if they feel like they need to defend their intention first. But I wasn't trying to do that. No, that's not what I meant. That's not. So to describe what they've done in objective terms, when you said X, 
you said these words or you did this, you took this action, which the court reporter will show that was just the black and white, simple statement of fact. Here's how it was received. That's different. And that really takes, I think, the energy out of it because you're not making them feel like a bad person. It may have done something that didn't land right. And that's what they need to hear, that you recognize that distinction. It's not you are, right? You are lazy or incompetent or anything. It's very important that it's all about, people say perception is reality. So how you are being perceived is the reality, whether you mean that or not. So it's really important that you never use sort of those, you are doing, you are this when you're giving that feedback. Absolutely. They say that what you communicate is whatever the other person hears. That's right. And there's two sides to everything. You're saying something and that person has all this context and bias and history. And so the same way they receive those words is not potentially the same way that you meant them. You as speaker, we as speaker also have our own contexts and biases and histories. And we may think, well, I'm unbiased. Well, no, I don't have any background. No, I don't carry that baggage. No, I'm objective. I love that one. I'm objective. They've got issues. So, but we all have our stuff and that biases that we have, the filters that we have also change the words that we pick and the way that we transmit something, even if we think it's coming across completely neutral. It's not, there is no such thing. There's not. And I'll tell you, actually, I think about it a lot because in my role, I spend a lot of time talking to leaders or employees and helping them navigate those. And I'd say, you know, 70% of the time, it comes down to a simple communication challenge, right? And helping each of those sides, like see things from the other person's perspective. I spend a lot of time doing that. I think that's the, the core is learning to see things from someone else's perspective and realize where the movie that's in your mind is not the movie that comes out in the movie that they watch in the conversation. So in doing all of this, what's one of the big issues of the day and how do you have to adjust your communication when you personally are talking with various stakeholder groups about it? I think the issue of the day has changed rapidly in the last couple months. I would say, you know, compensation has been a hot topic all year. We've seen the job market really competitive. Employees have a lot of opportunities out there. There's more jobs available than there are employees. So employees are constantly getting hit up with, you know, offers and things like that. I've started to see that change in the last couple of weeks, maybe, you know, a couple of months is as we're not sure what's going to happen next year, as we see all this publicity of tech layoffs and what's going on in the market. Now I'm starting to hear more things about job security. And so anytime you have one of those hot topics, you have to reframe the way that you're talking to your audience, right? So this, the way that I talk to employees is not the same way that I talk with our leaders in terms of compensation or job security. And so they each have a different agenda. And it's important that when I'm talking about those things, I have to kind of reframe the way in which I talk about them. So what's a framing that you would use? What's the distinction between when you're addressing the leaders in the company about compensation, job security, competition, those kinds of things versus when you're addressing the employees in the first place. Yeah. So let's use compensation as an example. So when I'm talking with employees about compensation, I'm often educating, teaching them, giving them a little bit of context about how compensation works. Like what you see on the internet isn't necessarily, you know, it's apples to oranges, right? And then when I'm talking to my leaders and my executive team, it's also giving them data-filled information because a lot of the things that we hear is anecdotal, right? So-and-so is talking about comp. But really, it's going back to the data. 
So how does our data look against the market? What are employees saying about how they feel? And so I use data over here with leaders and I use more education and context and really using my listening ears quite a bit with employees. And when you're listening with the employees, what is something that you're listening for? What's a a little trigger that somebody else might hear and go, oh, note to self? Yeah, I'm listening for a number of things, mostly why they're concerned, what's going on, what's the context, just really understanding their perspective and where they're coming from. I think that's really key. Never, ever, ever go into an employee, like conversation about comp with an employee and just pepper them with this and that. You have to hear them out first so that, you know, I can give them the right kind of coaching and guidance and all of that. Deep listening, deep listening. Deep listening, yes. Something that is very easy to remind ourselves and easy to forget in execution in those moments. Right. Don't leave with your own agenda. I used to do that quite a bit, right? All right. I have to have a conversation with an employee. Here's how I'm going to go into it. No, 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 no. That doesn't work. I have to go in now, listen to that employee, and then change my communication to make it a two-way dialogue. Yes. And of course, understanding what their context is, what their concerns are, what their drivers are for, whether it's about personal efficacy and fulfillment versus I can't feed my family or, you know, I'm concerned about health care bills and those kinds of things. It's going to be a very different conversation if you understand where their concerns are, I would imagine. That's right. And I think how I ultimately get them comfortable with the end result of our conversation. Yes. Right. That's key is that two-way listening. Well, and I find that the best way to, I've always said the best way to to feel heard and understood is to get the other person, to ensure that the other person feels heard and understood first, because people can't hear and listen until they feel like they've been heard. It's it's the, I need you to understand me first. When I have that catharsis, I can exhale, then I can open up and listen. But I, I need you to listen first when there's that stress behind whatever my concerns are. That's exactly right. Then who is one of the toughest audiences that you ever had to get through to? and What made it so difficult and how did you finally get through? Yeah, so I've worked at two companies now where I've relaunched our performance management sort of philosophy and process. And the first company, it was really easy. It was sort of bought in. I don't know, maybe they didn't care as much, but it was really easy to sell across. And then about two years ago here in Oldhorn, it was time to revamp that, our kind of how we looked at performance management. And I had engaged with my stakeholders and kind of gone and done my diligence and woven in some feedback or didn't weave in the feedback. And it was time to like sell it to the exec team. And so I went in with a very prepared, this is me presenting to you. And my boss was there, the CEO at the time. And they were like, yeah, that's good. We had a good dialogue. And then they said, make sure you go and talk to one of the other exec stakeholders and get his buy-in. And I went in with my like prepared, I wanted to look good, right? Like, here, look how smart we are. And I'm ready. I went in with my own agenda. And that does not fly with this particular executive. And he called me on that and was just like, are you hearing me? Or do you just want me to rubber stamp this? And I had to admit that, like, I kind of just want you to rubber stamp this. I'm <laughs> tired. Right? Like, I've done a lot of work on this. And ultimately, there was, I think, some really healthy conflict. And I learned to work with him in a very different way. And frankly, I, I prefer his way. He wants to be really collaborative and really partnered together and, and doesn't want something that's fully baked. And that was a really big learning lesson for me. But ultimately, there he gave me some great feedback. And if he hadn't called me on sort of my BS, we might not have gotten there. And together, what I ended up rolling out was so much better than 
than what I had gone in with. And it's certainly important to know how they other how the audience prefers. Do they want to be part of the process or do they just want you to bring something to them because that they can rubber stamp? And it's even to acknowledge to yourself, you know what? No, I really just kind of want a rubber stamp on this one. I think if you go in knowing what your hopes and your intentions are, that's one thing. But definitely knowing what their preferences are will help you be a lot more successful because maybe he would have preferred the rubber stamp method, in which case you were totally ready for that. But to be able to then bring him in and listen to to his input, it sounds like you learned how to get a lot better buy-in from him in the future as a result of that conversation. Definitely. And I think that's a tricky part I've learned throughout my career is you have to know your audience, right? So make those relationships, build those relationships. And sometimes I have lots of examples of stumbling, you know, stumbling down and falling down and it just makes you a better person. So it happens to everybody. Yes. Yes. It doesn't always feel good in the moment, but uh, afterwards it's, it makes us all a lot stronger and happier really in the end, just not necessarily in the moment. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard in the moment, but the work product is usually better too, right? When you put two good heads together, it's like one plus one equals three. Yes. And in doing all of this, what's an important lesson that you learned when you went from being an individual contributor to leading your first team? Yeah, that one has always been a very tricky one for me. I'm admittedly a control freak, <laughs> which I think works really well when you're an individual contributor, right? You can control everything. It's like, I'm accountable for this. And it's all me, me, me. And when you go from that to now leading teams, it's your responsibility. It was my responsibility, really to grow and develop the people underneath me. But when I was like hoarding the work or just taking on things because it was natural and it was easy for me to do, I was doing a disservice to my team members underneath me. So that for a long time now has actually been a challenge and I have to continually remind myself, sure, I could do this really easily. Someone reaches out to me, but it's for the betterment of my own development and for my team to push things down to them. So I've, heard, I've had to learn to let go and delegate. And I think it will be a lifelong struggle for me. But it's something that we all need to learn. And is there a tip that you can share as far as maybe self-talk or a natural reminder or some internal coping strategy when you do need to let go, to delegate, to give the control to somebody else and just back away to help you do that? I think about like in the scope of importance, where does this fall, right? And so if I pass this down and there's mistakes or it's not perfect, like where on the scheme of importance and criticality are we really talking about? And then I think about the opportunities that were afforded to me as an individual contributor and the times that my leaders gave me the opportunity to either rise or fail or make mistakes. And so that for me are those kind of those two things of weighing into reminding myself, like, this isn't going to break the company or ruin the team, pass it down. Or, hey, so-and-so might step up. I should pass this along. Let them try their hand at it. The pay it forward method of sorts is this is what someone did for me to allow me to learn these lessons and become successful. And now it's my turn to give that opportunity to somebody else. And even if it means, okay, I just need to look away and go do something else, distract myself and just try not to think about it for a while, but to let them go. It also comes in trusting the team. My team and I have worked pretty closely together now for a while, and I've seen our relationships accelerate. And when the trust is there, I can pass it all. You know, it's much easier to delegate and pass things along and, and say, I know you've got this. 
Well, I know you got this and everybody else out there. Here's something else you're going to get, a challenge. Kelly, this brings us to our listener 24-hour influence challenge. And this is an opportunity for you to talk directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? Yeah, so I'm going to challenge everyone to go do the one thing you've been putting off. You know how we have like those long to-do lists? There's something on their list that's going to take you a very short amount of time that you have just been putting off, whether it's a doctor's appointment or mailing a package or making a phone call or finally starting to tackle a project or a house, something, just go do it. I am the worst with putting things off and I get like paperwork that just piles up. It's like, just go do the one thing. It'll make you feel so much better. And so that's my challenge. 24 hours. All right, do the thing. And you know what? If it's something like trying to clear off that giant stack of papers that you realize is going to take more than what move one item, just start with the one. I find that often when there's something for me, at least that looks like it's going to be big. If I sit down and I say, okay, I'm just going to do, I have five minutes to just start it. Just open the document, just start the document blank, save the document, whatever it is. But as, once you're there, like it's easier to do the second step and who knows, you end up taking an hour or longer to do it, even though you thought you only wanted to do two minutes. It just, it's that first step, isn't it? Just breaking the seal of sorts. And then talent rolls downhill. I had an instance this weekend with this pile of like mail and bills and nonsense I had to go through. And it was like, once I did the first one, I was like, oh, I'm going to keep going. Right. But I've been putting it off for a long time and it adds stress to your life. Just get it done. Get it done. It does. It does. So get that done. It's a great way to end the year, a great way to kick off the new year, a great way to just start with the clean slate. Indeed. Okay. Now let's talk about mistakes. We've talked about lots of successes. Let's talk about some of the lessons learned the hard way. What's a communications related mistake that you've made? And if you could have a do-over, what would it sound like? I had uh, early last, well, it was this year. It feels like a long time ago, but in about April of this past year, we had built out our, our learning and development team. And I had tasked them with some pretty big projects, three big high profile initiatives that I wanted them to get done in, you know, a relatively short amount of time, but also done very well. And so the head of that function asked me to come in and kind of talk to the team. And I went in and I didn't have relationships with these people. And I can be very sarcastic and big energy. And I wasn't recognizing my audience and also my position. And I went in and I basically was like, hey, three huge things. I need you guys to get these things done. It's going to be awesome. But if you don't wake up every morning and feel uncomfortable and a little bit anxious about what you have to deliver, you should have that feeling. If you wake up every day and have that feeling, that's how you know you're doing it at the right pace. (laughs) I thought I was being very inspiring, right? Get a little uncomfortable, stretch yourself. And the feedback I got from my leader of that group was basically you scared the crap out of them. And they're panicked that they're going to need to work like 12-hour days and just work constantly. And I was like, oh, man, that was really quite a landed with a thud for sure. Lead balloon effect. Yep. Yep. Okay. So what would a do-over have been? Or were you able to reconcile with them? Did you have a follow-up conversation to set the record straight? I did. I let the leader focus on that. And then, you know, I think they just got to know me over the year that we've worked together now. They delivered on all those three things. Then if you could have gone back and read, had a do-over, what would you have said instead to still get your intended meaning across, but in a way that they would have been able to hear what you meant? I would have just been a little 
softer, a little less me and recognize my audience of like, hey, these are new people that have just started the company. They don't know you. So just acknowledge that it's going to be hard work, but that you know you have faith in them and that they can do it. I probably would have taken more of a sort of a cheerleader encouragement, warm hug type approach versus boisterous, over-energetic Kelly approach. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm Jersey Italian, Laura. So, you know, I certainly appreciate the inclination to go towards uh, high energy and whatever else. But, you know, I, I want to go back to something that you said, and I, I wonder if we can reframe it a little bit, because rather than being less of yourself, maybe it's about being less of your default setting self, because you do also somewhere in there, I'm sure, have the the, cheer, the natural cheerleader side of you that you show to other people in other contexts or in et cetera. It's not that that's not you, right? You're not trying to be someone else. And it's just that you're shifting gears. Would, would that be fair to say? That's totally fair. I think the other key thing is I recognized with that team just recently about the incident. Like, hey, do you guys remember when I made this snafu? And I sort of like, came back to the table and everyone sort of laughed and was like, oh, we definitely remember that. And there's a, an ownership piece there. And I didn't do it in the moment right after. But, you know, six months later, it was important to recognize that I had messed up a little bit on that one. Well, and it's good that you can have the conversation with them. And I think that's an important leadership skill to be able to own it and to own it publicly and to own it to the people to whom you made the mistake. And not do it in a way that's sheepish, you know, to be to humble about it and say, yeah, that was not my best moment and you know, should have done better in this way, that way or something else. But just to show that you don't have to put up a facade and pretend that it never happened as if to do so would undermine your authority or undermine your power or your control or something. So I'm sure that that actually helped to elevate your esteem in their eyes and their respect for you overall that you could say, yeah, that was probably not my best first move. Laura, I'll say this. I'm going to sort of double click into the comment that you just made. I think modern leaders these days don't lead with power or authority. I think a really great leader leads with, you know, empathy, leads with being human, humility. I think those are the real, real characteristics of a great leader these days. Power and authority are so two decades ago. I think today's modern leaders are a totally different profile, if you will. Yes, the importance of distinguishing. And this is a lesson that my father taught me, gosh, 25 years ago or something along those lines, that there's a difference between commanding respect and demanding respect. And that whole role of leadership, you know, when I was at a college and that my very, a lot of people know my first job, my first real job at least was teaching public school out in South Central Los Angeles. And my dad had taught middle school for 40 years or so, which to me is insane. Don't know if he should be canonized, committed or both, probably both. (laughs) But I remember asking him, you know, dad, how am I going to get the kids to respect me? I was just getting ready to to start my first year teaching. And he thought for a second and he said, Laura, you can't demand that they respect you. You have to command it with your presence and your way of being. And I didn't really understand it then, but boy, does it make sense now? And is it a driving force? So I think you just illustrated that beautifully. And that's a journey. You got to figure out what that looks like. Every individual has to figure out what that looks like for themselves. 100%. 100%. And in doing this now, what's an approach that you've used to address an accountability issue with somebody on your team? I always lead with the intention, right? I also always lead with asking them 
why it happened. So, you know, you missed ABC, XYZ fell through the cracks. Like, I lead with, please tell me what happened here. Is there context I should know about? And then it allows me to sort of, A, maybe there was something that I missed or there was context I didn't understand. So it allows me to get their perspective. And then from there, you have to give direct feedback. I try to be direct, but again, lead with kindness. I try not to squish it between any like superficial positive statements. It's like, hey, this didn't go well, right? We need to talk about that. And I think going back to your earlier comment about the Oreo sandwich of sorts, you know, starting with something positive and then an ending with book ending of sorts with something positive around the challenge. You just said something really, really crucial. And I want to make sure that everybody out there heard it, which is that whatever positive statements you're sharing, they can't be perfunctory. They can't be generic lip service of some sort because people will see right through that. And so it needs to be something specific. It needs to be something concrete. It needs to be something that's reasonably objective where you're saying this was done, this action that you took, that's the objective fact, or the way that you handled this, then you can put your subjective evaluation on it was done well and well as determined by whatever standard of success measure. But it can't just be something generic or superficial or it won't count. And if I can tack one more thing onto that, when you're done with that first piece of praise or piece of positive please do not transition with but. I'm going to actually double tack onto what you just said. It goes back to, remember back in the day when you used to like present in a conference room and you would get up and you'd stand in front of the screen and you would do your little spiel and then you would go and you would sit down and someone would pat you on the back and say, nice job, right? Imagine when someone says nice job, when they could say, hey, you did a great job with your energy up there. You weren't using any ums, which is, you know, a big advancement for you. You had good energy and you really told the story in a way that resonated with the audience. Those are two very different compliments. And one actually means something and the other one is just superficial. And so I think that's a larger PSA for people is be generous and thoughtful when you do compliment someone. Yes. So generosity. I think there's a lot of people out there who feel like they have to withhold praise so people don't get soft. And I think you know, the more people feel appreciated for the work that they're doing, the more willing they are to do more because they, why would you want to work harder for someone who doesn't seem to appreciate the first level that you're doing? It's, it changes the energy of the relationship. So uh, being sure to connect on that level. And also when you give them specific praise or, and I find I've learned this from teaching 25 years teaching, coaching, training, all that kind of stuff, that when people know what was good, then it's much easier to extrapolate and to repeat performance the next time around because you know which tactics, which structures, which approaches, et cetera, you did that was appreciated as opposed to just good job overall, which is better than nothing for certain. And it, it, it is nice to know that the whole thing was well received, broadly speaking. It's just hard to know what to apply again, the next time around, where when there's something a little bit more specific, then it's more confidence inspiring to know that you can truly do it again, because you know what to do again. All right, then tell me a little bit about, let's talk about if someone in your organization wanted to move up into a senior leadership role, aside from technical expertise, what's the one skill they'd have to demonstrate to you and why? It's agility and larger business acumen. So I think technical expertise can only get you so far, you'll hit a ceiling, right? Maybe it's at that director level. If you want to go to that next level, right? Vice president, whatever the levels are in that particular company, 
I recommend that you're agile, right? And you understand your business. What does that mean, agile? Agility is like, you got to be able to roll something out 80% of the way, launch it, right? Doesn't have to be perfect. And then you go back, what can we change? What needs to evolve? How was, how did it land? Right. And then you can quickly make changes to whatever it is that you've launched or rolled out. It's important to be agile and so that you can make changes along the way. And then I think understanding your business. What's our product? What's our value prop? How do we make money? What market do we compete in? Like you don't just get to executive level leaders don't just understand their own silo. They understand how the whole business and where their piece goes into the larger picture. Yes. Yes. I've worked with a number of clients over the years who have been right at that precipice point. And one of the skills we had to work on developing was helping them go from learning how to talk to their people on the technical level to think about translating for people who are in multiple verticals. You want to be sitting on that board level, on that C-suite level, on that whatever level. Well, that means you're going to be talking to people in IT and finance and HR and strategy and ops and all that kind of stuff. Can you tell them what your work has to do with theirs? And that when you can make those translations, what does it show that you're ready to sit with them at the table because you have that strategic vision as opposed to just the narrow and deep tactical one? Executives also have to understand the business and understand that their own, you know, functional space isn't always a priority. And so understanding the priorities and where you fit in, then you become the champion of the company, right? So there are things in HR that I wanted to roll out, but I understand what's going on at this company. And I'm like, this is not the time, right? So yes, would we love to invest in this or do this big new thing for employees? We would, but it's not the right time. And I understand that at my level as an executive, that in the grand scheme, not now. And timing is really important. So that's I hope everybody catches that nugget as well to recognize when is the right time. It's so not to say always holding back. So I think there are those people who maybe are a lot more conflict averse, a little more afraid to put yourself out there, more risk averse, if not conflict, at least risk averse, and are always waiting for something that seems like a more perfect timing. There's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be challenges. There's always going to be frictions. There's always going to be competing priorities. So at some point you do need to pull the trigger. But if you tend to lean toward the other end and just always jumping in, perhaps hesitating or at least thinking twice, just double checking is now the right time. And not just because there's the compulsion to want to jump in right now because it's of interest to you. That's right. That's exactly right. Finally, Kelly, as Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. What's one communication pattern that's had a big cultural impact, positive or negative, on a team you've been part of? I've learned that you have to communicate in a multiple different ways and tell people things more than just once and in different styles. So like we've talked a lot, like people receive things very, very differently. And so if there's a big initiative or a launch or something that's shifting in the organization, I've tried to be really thoughtful about the number of ways in which we communicate, whether it's email, Slack, a video, right? Going down to team town halls, You need to be very, very thoughtful in how you reach your audience when it comes to culture. Knowing the channel through which to reach the right people, because everybody hears something in different media and certainly pays attention to something else. If you're not paying attention, doesn't matter what it is, your message won't get heard. Right. You have to meet them where they are. Absolutely. Digitally and otherwise. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining on the show today. How can people learn more about you and Bullhorn? 
Yeah. So you can follow us. We're on LinkedIn, Bullhorn Inc. And we're on Instagram, which is Life at Bullhorn. It's one of my favorite Instagram channels. And then our website, bullhorn.com as well. And people can find you on LinkedIn. Sure can. Excellent. That's Kelly with EY at the end, right? Kelly with an EY. You got it. Excellent. I want to make sure you're finding the right one and going, I see an awful lot of Kelly Morrises and I'm not seeing anybody <laughs> with Bullhorn. Spelling, spelling, spelling always matters. This is terrific. So thank you again. This has been a lot of fun. It has been fun. Thank you for having me. And everybody else out there, thank you as always for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't done so yet so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, CastBox, and your favorite platform of choice so we can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sicola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sicola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.